welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. And welcome back to another episode of the Brain Tools Podcast, episode number 14. And we've got a special one today. It's a bonus episode. Last week, we were speaking about the neuroscience of negative emotions, but we specified and looked at anger and sadness. But by the request of the people, many, many messages coming to myself and Sam, a lot of them talked about the idea of anxiety and worry. And so what we wanted to do today is we're all about the people here. We like to think anyway, we're doing a special bonus episode to actually extend that negative emotion episode. And we're going to look at the neuroscience of anxiety you're going to learn all about it, where it's in the brain, the differences between fear, anxiety, and worry. And as always, by the end of it, six, wait on, four brain tools, a bit of a spanner in the works, Ooh. four brain tools uh, <laughs> to basically help you with your anxiety. But Samuel, welcome. Welcome. Ah, welcome welcome to you too, my friend. Good to be here. We are, we are of the people, as you know, and this one has come. <laughs> so self-righteous, hotly, aren't we? <laughs> hotly requested. We're of the people. No, but like this is something that has um, – I'm actually pretty excited about this because it has come up quite a few times and usually it's some iteration of like why do I have anxiety? Why does it happen? How does it work? How do I ever deal with it? So I felt like we are obliged, you know, to answer this a little bit. But uh, on a more personal level, how are you doing, my friend? How's life? I'm good. Life is life is good. It's We always get this time of year and we're like, wow, Christmas is around the corner. The mm. end of the year is nice. So I feel like the years now just accelerating to the end. And then we're in 2021. I don't really know how to feel about it, to be honest with you. The festive season. Well, I mean, if 2020 could be any worse, which it couldn't, 2021 will have to be better. So, yeah, silver lining. How are you, more importantly? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, yeah. Ready. Oh, good, mate. Thanks. I'm you want good. to move on now? I'm good. Yeah. It's that's, that's, that's very male vulnerability of me. Isn't it? How you doing, mate? Okay. Very expressive. Well done, Sam. Quite emotive. Well, we'll have to get to the emotional expression and management episode soon too. We will. Yeah. I need some bloody help. Okay. Quite frankly, need quite a lot of help. Um, but, but today, but today, but today we're yes. talking about anxiety. And uh, so we're kind of in the uh, the anxiety gen- generation, right? Like, yeah. I think there was more cases of diagnosed anxiety disorders now than any other period in history. That is actually insane. Which is uh, oh, world's biggest mental health problem, you dare say. <laughs> you would, I 100% would say. It's, it's got to be up there, anxiety and depression and mental health in general. And then just a couple of stats, because you know how we love stats. Everyone loves oh, a love it. Love a, love a fact, love a stat. <laughs> yep. So the world's biggest mental health problem, so world's mental health survey, which is this massive, large survey, thousands of people worldwide, uh, and they measured across mental disorders across countries across the world, found that on average, 
one person in four will experience an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. One in four, 25%. Now, you, you think about that, and you've got more than four friends, most of us. At least one person you know. That's a big assumption, mate. I hope so. <laughs> it's a big assumption. I hope you've got more than four friends. But, but even if you don't, you know, like it, just looking at your own family unit and extending that beyond to the people you know in your network, there are probably dozens of people we, we each know who suffer from an anxiety disorder. Absolutely. I mean, putting that into perspective, right? There's 8 billion people on planet Earth. That's, that means 2 billion people, basically. That's a lot of people. That's a, it's a lot of people. And the context is this is over the point of their life, so it's not all simultaneous. But, you know, 2 billion people out of the 8 billion is going to, will experience, likely to experience anxiety disorder. There was also some other really interesting stats, and I find these fascinating. Do you mind? Uh, females are approximately twice as likely as males to experience anxiety. Interesting. According, Interesting. according to the reported statistics, and people with parents who have anxiety disorders are two to four times more likely to have one. Wow. So the, the question I, I have to ask is, the parents. I'm not gonna lie. it's scary. It's scary, right? Oh, um, but there are, some, there, there are some silver linings though, and we're going to touch on them a little bit because of the way anxiety works, and there are some things you can definitely do. So it, it's not all doom and gloom. There's some positivity. The brain is plastic, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But before we do that, Kieran, my friend, have you ever experienced anxiety in your life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I've thought about this a fair bit um, and through the fear setting, such anxiety setting exercise that we'll get to later on. Um, but I think mine stems from like my fear of rejection and being disliked. Like I hate it yeah. when people dislike me. Yeah. And so, you know, I always look into the future and I'm like, oh, what, what if I did this? What if I do that? Especially looking back at social circumstances, ruminating over what I should have said and what I shouldn't do. And it was really weird having this or interesting having this conversation with someone. They're like, Kieran, you're pretty, you know, outgoing, you're pretty affable as if you actually experience that. But I think, um, you know, it's a classic veneer, right, um, around all these different things. So I think that's my source of anxiety, if that makes sense. You? Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for sharing for that. Uh, yeah, look, I've definitely had my periods, periods of social anxiety. Similar to you, I think it's a, a social rejection thing. It's funny though, right, because I know they did some research uh, highlighting that when we're in groups and when we're rejected within a group, the same parts of our brain responsible for physical pain light up. So social rejection feels almost the same as physical pain does. The anterior cingulate cortex, I dare say. Correct. Center, center of pain. I just yeah, want to test myself the, out there. The, the ACC um, and also the back of the PFC and parts of the insula too. So really fascinating that it's, it's, it's painful. Absolutely. And I think that's why today it's all about giving you the background context and delving into that sort of neuroscience of anxiety and worry. And then, yeah, obviously going into the brain tools. But I think in terms of a place to start, Sam, I reckon I reckon starting mm. from a definitional point of view is probably important, right? I'm I'm not one of those to get into the philosophical debates on, you know, like define this stuff before, but from a neuroscience perspective- Are you my English teacher? Are you my <laughs> English teacher? No, I majored in philosophy then. Um, <laughs> but I think the big thing is to define this because- Having conversations when we're, you know, preparing for the episode, talking through it, people use anxiety, fear, and worry interchangeably. But the reality is they're actually quite distinct in nature. And so what I wanted to actually do first and foremost is just, you know, define it um, and then obviously dive into it because anxiety is actually characterized as a prolonged state of tension and worry concerning potentially but uncertain negative future events. So it's about anticipation of the future. That is really distinct from fear. 
Fear is is literally in the moment. It's fight, flight, freeze response to a direct stimulus. You got a growling dog in front of you that's going to kill you. You want to run away. That's the immediate response. But then anxiety being, you know, feeling of uncertain threat. You don't know if it's there and it might be. And then you have the, the last distinction, which is worry, which I find really interesting. You know, everyone knows a quote unquote warrior, which we always talk about. Um, and that's when anxiety is actually repeated and it becomes a part of our thinking. And that's the key thing of being a misattribution of our brain. We actually, the brain believes worrying is actually a really effective mechanism <laughs> to dealing with the anxiety, um, which I find really interesting. But those definitions um, are, are pretty important. They, they put it so much into different context. I think like the key thing there that people should take away and, and really hone in on is the fact that anxiety is this fear response to an uncertain threat, this prolonged yeah. uncertain threat. So it's, it's your brain stressing you out because something might happen that your brain thinks will threaten your survival. And a lot of the time, this is uh, a learned response, right? Like that's that's what char- 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 character character characterizes. Wow, that was a terrible <laughs> word to say. That's fine. Got it. I look really smart. Um, so some people are more susceptible. There are hereditary risks, uh, but it is often learned through developmental experiences, things like ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, uh, and conditioning your brain to, to respond to uncertain threats. It's really a fear response, like going rogue and triggering this fear response to something that may or may not happen. So I was just going to give you a really quick uh, like rundown of how it works in your brain, but like in the most basic layman's terms possible. Because I think this give makes... Me, give me the roadmap. I'm ready. How does it work? I'll give you the roadmap. It makes it so much easier when you think about it this way. So number one is you begin to think about a future situation. Then your brain starts to predict something bad happened. Consciously prediction machine prediction machine prediction machine and this is that like so people know this this is that oh what if this happens or what if that happens or oh. what if they don't like me or, or what if like right so this is well, that prediction loop. Eh? hypotheticals and this is how it can happen so consciously or subconsciously you can do this without realizing or you can have that what if loop so your brain starts to prepare you to survive by triggering your threat circuitry and your fear response this is when you start to become stressed out so your body releases cortisol, adrenaline. It's preparing you to survive. It's your body's now saying, all right, cool. We might be in a really dangerous situation. Let's get you ready to move, to, to, to flight or fight or freeze or fight, whichever one your situational response is. Um, and people know this is like when you get really anxious, you start to get sweaty, your heart's racing, you're feeling clammy, you can't think. You know, It's like uh, difficult to concentrate, all these kind of things. I find that, that, that very good, by the way, in terms of signposting. It's almost like an, a recipe list that you've got there. And I think the thing mm. that sits there is like, this is all in your head. <laughs> like, this is not real. How crazy is that? <laughs> this is not, it's not real at all. And everything is being triggered to be like, I got to go. I got to do something. I, I find go. that nuts. Yeah, this is dangerous. Like, weird. We're doing a brain thing. I find it so weird. So weird. <laughs> The weirder thing about it, all right, and this is the thing I find weirdest, is the brain also interprets like social situations and correlates them with survival. Mm. So this is when that like that reject rejection comes in or, uh, you know, what if they don't like me? Or what if this happens? It's because your brain is is subconsciously processing this concept that if you're rejected in a social situation, it's going to be really bad for your long-term survival because we're socio-emotional animals. And that's why the anxiety is being triggered and you have the physical changes and so it begins. Oh, that's oh, – brain, why can't you be nice to us sometimes? <laughs> I know. <laughs> The maladaptations of the modern brain. Hey, you, you, write, you write in the journal. 
I, I that actually should that that will be my title. I'll be looking out for the world's worst journal article. Um, <laughs> but side note, that's kind <laughs> yes. of like so that's the rest. That's the recipe, right? That's how it happens. The step by step. Where is this actually happening in your brain, though? Like that's what people want to know. Where does it happen? Got to have the ingredients, right? Can't make a recipe yeah. without the ingredients. And so um, the ingredients in the brain, um, in reality, there's three main areas that actually have increased activation in more anxious people. And it was found by Duval and colleagues in 2015 and talk about a journal title, title here, Therapeutics and Clinical Risk Management. <laughs> Good on them though. They did a good job here. Um, they basically have high neural activation in these areas. Now, the three areas are the amygdala, Amy, we've talked about a lot, the anterior cingulate cortex, your center for uh, physical and mental pain, and the hippocampus, obviously where long-term memories are stored a big part of the learned behaviors. Now, I only really want to touch on two because we've obviously spoken about it. The analogy we always have with your amygdala, and I want to make this really, really clear, it is your alarm system. It is as if a robber comes comes in. So if I can give you this analogy, if the alarm goes off, Sam, in your house, what will you do? Yep. Well, you start to panic. You, you rush around. You try to figure out what's going on. Correct. You rush around, you figure out, and if nothing's gone, what do you do? You turn it off, right? It just becomes annoying. But the issue here with people that suffer from anxiety is their amygdala is constantly going off, their alarm's constantly going off, but they can't, can't. They don't turn it off. They can't turn it off. And it's almost as if there are too many false alarms. So if you've got a benign situation, a benign comment or something like an evaluation, Ooh. it's heightened risk assessment. And as you said, it could be the most small thing for an anxious person, but to you who's giving, delivering that, you don't think it's that bad. And so I think that you can sort of rephrase Amy to be mindful that it is the detector, but you don't consciously experience fear in the amygdala necessarily. Um, that's likely to be in the sort of higher cortical areas when it's conscious experience of fear. And then obviously in the subcortical areas where it's obviously unconscious fear, but amygdala thoughts. I love that frame as an alarm system because, like, people can put that image in their head, right? This, that's great copywriting, Kieran. Well done. Very nice. Uh, Marketing. <laughs> Marketing. But yeah, yeah, you can have that kind of image now when you're anxious. You've got this alarm system which is being falsely triggered over and over again. Super, super easy to process. And then that leads to, again, issues because in reality, if you know the alarm goes off once and then you see that nothing's going wrong, there's obviously a learned behavior. It's stored in your long-term memory. And that's why it's really important the hippocampus, right? But this is the issue yeah. is that stress or constant repeated stress, which is obviously anxiety and worry is obviously the habit of that. It shrinks the hippocampus. Mm. That's so yeah. crucial for processing long-term and contextual memories. And the issue becomes here that people that are anxious or experiencing anxiety and you know worry to the long-term all memories except for the ones that support the anxiety, trauma, and stressor remain. So all the bad ones remain and all the good ones go bye-bye. Um, and I find that really interesting that when we're looking at your learned memories for safety and your learned memories for threats, they're actually two distinct mm -hmm. neural circuits. And in reality, when you learn something, a second memory is actually created to suppress the first. So it's almost as if like you painted a painting and then reality, what comes along is you just paint over it again. It's almost like graffiti on the wall in Melbs when you got your tag and then people just basically paint over it. It's still yeah. underneath there. You just can't see it. But that sort of sums up the main areas to make sure that obviously learn behaviors, but different circuits responsible for what you might be feeling. Super powerful. That is another great analogy as well. That idea of like repainting over old fear and trauma memories. And there's great work by Joseph Ledoux, who's kind of like the, the champion of neuroscience fear and anxiety. And he talks about <laughs> the fact that th this can lead to like people who, you know, build up memories 
like over the top of their fear memory, but the paint can kind of be scraped off. And so they can have relapsing events where that fear comes back up. It's not perfect. But I think it's also important to talk about like why we get stuck in anxiety. It's a loop. Why are we get why do we get stuck in the loop? It is it is a loop and it's they they call it this like self-reinforcing mechanism. Um, and psychologists can often call it depressive rumination or rumination when it's about d- depression or rumination otherwise. And so this idea of negative reinforcement, that when you're anxious, you begin to trigger your brain to have this fear slash threat response in avoidance of a situation, right? You're This uncertain thing is going to happen. So you're like, All right, I'm going to avoid it because I'm freaking out about that. What then happens is that sends a signal to the brain or activates the neural pathways associated with it, telling you, all right, cool, that was the right response because it didn't happen. So as a result, you are now reinforcing that behavior by avoiding it. So the problem with anxiety is that people get more and more anxious and they teach themselves to be more and more anxious because by avoiding the thing that's making them anxious or by confirming that fear memory and that anxiety response, they're telling their brain it's what they should be doing in that situation. This is, okay, this moment, I finally now understand something, which I haven't understood my entire life. Thank you, Sam, which yeah. is mums and worrying. So my mum, every time yeah. I call her and she doesn't pick up, she immediately will, like, whenever she's ready and I don't pick up again, she'll be like, is everything okay? Is everything okay? And so that's clearly that learned response you're talking about. That worry in that time that I don't, we don't contact each other is a learned behavior to help, obviously, her cope with it um, as a result of her mm-hmm. brain believing it. But that... That is huge. <laughs> so strong, right? So it's like that whole thing of the things that we make make us anxious, we avoid. And as a result of avoiding them, we're telling our brain to be anxious about them. Self-confirming. It loops. It loops. Brain. Oh, Come on, brain. <laughs> Why do you do this to us? Um, and the, so the, I, the other thing you touched on and I think it's worth saying, and people who suffer from chronic, chronic anxiety or anxiety disorders, anxiety disorders, they will know this, right? And that it's totally messes with your brain function. So they, they did a study where they actually took a whole bunch of people and they put them in a room with some CO2 uh, in the room, which triggers the anxiety response or the, the body stress response. And they found when they did this, that executive function, their ability to do uh, tasks related to executive function to that prefrontal cortex just plummeted, just absolutely plummeted. And it's because that stress response was impairing their ability to, to think. So it has this massive impact on that, but also on memory formation, as you talked about. So go back and listen to our episode on stress, where we talk about why your memory breaks down under conditions of stress and how it shrinks your hippocampus. And like the way I'd like wrap this out is, you know, think of that moment when the moment when you've been most anxious in your life and you can barely remember what actually happened. You can just remember the stress and how you felt. Yeah, it's a really, really good point because that, that sort of links. We talk about the prefrontal cortex being the CEO of the brain. It's directing traffic and so on. Um, in reality, how on earth can you actually focus on a task at hand, which is all about you know, problem-solving, decision-making? How can you do that if you're stuck in the, in the future? A future that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. but like if you're there and you be like, again, think back to maybe if you've been through a breakup before um, and you're sort of sitting there trying to do your work and you're constantly in the future of like the next time you meet them, what you're going to text them, are you going to get a response? You're spending so much time in that a future that doesn't exist that you're not currently present. You're almost in another parallel sort of universe and that becomes obviously really a big issue if you're trying to get work done and have like decent brain function. <laughs> yeah, you're like, how can I do my work now? Everything is so dangerous in the future. <laughs> almost like you're, you're almost like an old person projecting the future 
you kids, you whippersnappers. <laughs> and I know, um, well, we're going we're gonna to be old eventually. Check out episode nine, Aging, hey? Yeah, that's a good point. Shout out. Quiet little shout out there. Uh, just the last point to wrap this up is that in saying all these things, yeah, it is it can, anxiety can be quite scary and debilitating, but a lot of it, up to 60% estimated by science, is learned and you can unlearn it or you can relearn a new memory, a new behavioral response that paints over it. So Kieran talked about before the two distinct neural circuits. When you learn a fear for something, you can relearn how to overcome that and create this new memory, which suppresses the old one. And that becomes then the pattern and the schema your brain uses in that situation. So it's like Kieran said, rather than erasing the picture, you're painting over it. You can do this. Uh, It's called self-directed neuroplasticity. And we will talk a little bit about how you can in the next section on brain tools. All right, and welcome to the uh, brain tools section, the practical section. Today, we're doing it a little bit differently. Uh, We're going to have four brain tools rather than six, not to overload you, but because we split up some of the brain tools into the next episode, so you have to wait out for that. But uh, brain tools for anxiety, what what have you got for us? Well, so I'm going to I'm going to take a more long term approach. Yeah. Okay. So my brain tools today, Sam, if I can provide that context, I'm going to go long term. I know you're going to go short term. So hopefully, um, if people use these brain tools interchangeably, you have stuff for the moment, and you have stuff obviously for the long term as well. And my brain tool number one, if I can share, is practice fear slash anxiety setting. Okay. What is that? What does that now, mean? It's a, it's a form of cognitive self-therapy, I'd say, coined by Tim Ferriss. And again, when I say cognitive self-therapy, again, a form of self-reflection. And this is the whole idea that you're trying to target um, the cognitive response circuitry that we spoke about before, the conscious experience of fear. And there's a quote by my my main man, Yoda, and like, you've got to trust what Yoda says, right? And he says, I'm not, I'm not putting on the voice, don't you dare make me do this. <laughs> Named must your fear be before banishing it, you can. Imagine Yoda voice. But that's a really good point. In reality, how can you overcome your anxiety without actually having labeled them before? And so it involves bringing this to conscious awareness. Again, to your point, Sam, of using the conscious mind to actually fix the obviously unconscious. So, Sam, can I show you how? It's a longie, but I think it's a goodie. You you definitely can. I just wanted to say on that naming it before you are banishing it, uh, we just recorded an episode with Andrea Samini of – social and emotional neuroscience, learning of social emotional intelligence. And she talks about this. Great point. So tell me how. Very good. Um, How do you do it? So Sam, I want you to imagine you've got a piece of paper. All right. Can you imagine that for me? You can actually get one if you want. Do you want to get one? (laughs) Everyone, Sam's got a piece of paper. He's doing this with me. Uh, Welcome to his session. So you've got a piece of paper. Sam, the first thing that you want to do is you want to get a piece of paper and you want to create three columns. You got three columns and in those columns, yeah. you want to have define, prevent, and repair. Now, this is the three things that we're going to go through for each individual fear or point of anxiety that you might have. Thank you for doing that so quickly. Really appreciate it. Now, once you've done that, it's all about going through these three columns, which is the first thing, right, which is define. You want to define your nightmare. What is the absolute worst thing that could happen with this? So it could be losing all your money, as an example. It could be meeting friends. It could be public speaking, whatever it is. And you want to ask yourself two pointed questions. Like, what's the worst case scenario? What is the actual worst case scenario? What might go wrong? And would your life end? Like, if you got up in front of a bunch of people when you were doing public speaking, not taking any way from, anything away from, you know, how anxious that experience might be, but how likely is that to happen, your life ending, just because you're up there um, presenting some sort of thing? Now, I think that's defining it, not to trivialize it, but to actually get some context to it. 
You with me so far? Mm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, deep thought. I love this. So once you've defined it, what you then want to do, number three under prevention, is you want to then list the ways you can reduce the likelihood of each of those worst case scenarios happening. So what actions can you take to make these scenarios less likely to happen? In the public speaking example, you can obviously practice public speaking three or four times. You can watch public speaking videos. You can do things to prevent that stuff from happening. Again, looking at the obstacles in your way. And then finally, you want to then list the ways you can repair the damage. So if this situation were to come through your worst, worst case scenario, what actions could you take to repair the damage and get back on track? And by doing this, this again, you know, you're dedicating a good 30, 40 minutes to this, um, which I did recently as well. And it was very liberating to see your fears on and fears and anxiety or sources of anxiety on paper and then actually assessing mm-hmm. the, the worst case scenarios. Like out of 10, a scale of one to 10, one being minimal and 10 being permanently life altering, how bad would these experiences actually be? And assigning that sort of marker or score becomes really interesting in setting those anxieties, defining them and seeing them and facing them, facing them right there. I love that. It's it's really taking it out of your head, putting it on a, pa- a piece of paper and then taking a more critical lens and saying, well, hang on, like what what is the worst actual outcome and working back from there? Great brainstorm. Thanks, mate. I mean, Mark Twain sums it up better than I can. You know, he says, I'm an old man and I've known many great troubles, but most of them never happened. Mm. Mic drop. Isn't that... Hey. Isn't that just like so perfectly encapsulating anxiety? It actually is though. (laughs) Just worrying about something that is possibly never going to happen or likely never going to happen. And that's brain tool number one, fear slash anxiety setting and passing on to you. Strong. So mine are not as longitudinal or maybe as uh, quote supported. Thanks for the deep there, not as long. long, Do you want to to hold on the long part? Longitudinal. It it wasn't a deliberate long, but it came out. No, mine are, yeah, my my brain tools are more about uh, in the moment, like disrupting in the moment. Uh, and brain tool number two, my first one, is disrupting your looping, your anxious looping, your rumination with attention shifting. Uh, why, 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 why? Well, as we talked about before, anxiety is the result of the brain ruminating on an uncertain situation, a threat and perceiving this threat and then to a threat to your survival and triggering your fear response and preparing yourself for the situation, right? But by choosing to focus on other information or something different entirely, you're refocusing the thought processes triggering that anxiety. So for example, you take your public speaking situation if you're sitting there thinking about public speaking imagining getting up on stage imagining failing imagining the crowd laughing at you then obviously you're just triggering and triggering and triggering triggering that anxiety response that fear response prolonged fear response whereas if you say oh hang on i'm overthinking this i'm, I'm thinking about being up on stage and that's making me anxious and go all right i'm just gonna go watch a funny video for five minutes of this comedian i love or i'm, I'm just gonna go you know, like play some basketball or go for a walk. Suddenly your brain is now focused on that and the trigger, the anxiety trigger is completely disrupted because those resources are shifted away from thinking about the thing causing your anxiety to doing something entirely else. So how do you do this? Really, really simple. Go to something that actually takes your attention. When you're in that moment, when you're experiencing the loop, when you're ruminating, go to something that disrupts the rumination process. Um, exercise, reading about something new or unrelated, maybe a great book uh, or anything that requires your focused attention will move that tension away from the the anxiety stimuli, the stimulus, uh, the threat response towards processing what's going on. 
So to make it active, actionable, to make it active, just write down what your anxiety breaking activity is going to be. Looking for, you know, something that really requires your attention that you like. So mine would, for example, mine would be play basketball. I'd go shoot some hoops or read a book. And when you start to anxiety spiral, then you do this. That's it. Disrupt your attention, disrupt your anxiety pattern. I really, really like that because I think like taking that even and extending it even further because you're talking about the idea of, you know, taking that pause, distracting yourself, um, even telling like say your partner or someone that's really, really close to you, say your housemate or roommate, if they notice the cues of your anxiety, telling them that this is your plan and then a, a reminder, if they sense that you are feeling a little bit anxious, you're talking about this thing, using them as a reminder of a form of social accountability mm-hmm. to say, hey, remember your plan that you came up with, maybe it's yeah, time to execute that, to break that, you know, and make it easier, you know, to, to get it done. I love that. A bit of social accountability. You're all about oh. social accountability. That's- yeah, I am. Rule with an iron fist, hey? <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, so that's brain tool number two. But your next one's a goodie. And another one which is really good for like long-term perspective of dealing with anxiety. Thank you very much, Sam. I appreciate it. Brain tool number three. Now, it's going to be a weird title, but expose yourself through a pyramid. Now, it's a weird way to start saying expose yourself and then like a really, really, really loud voice. That is not what I mean. Am I going to get locked up for this? Is this, oh, is this an indicting event? Wow. We're at 14 episodes in and then uh, yeah, we're already behind bars. It's not a good thing. <laughs> We've gone from Nobel Prize winning to, to, the, to behind bars very, very quickly. <laughs> uh, just banter. Met- but- met- metaphorical. Metaphorical. This is all metaphorical. Um, basically, what we're now looking at from a pyramid perspective, we talked about obviously using the conscious brain to do so. Now we're targeting that threat response circuitry that is obviously largely non-conscious in, in their response. And this is all about exposure theory. We've heard about it before. But if you expose yourself to the stimuli, the thing or that environment that causes or is the source of the anxiety or worry, doing it in small micro doses in a controlled environment is really, really important. It's it's similar in the pyramid set of when you go lift heavy weights. Now, Sam, you're looking jacked at the moment, I must say. Um, and I know you are a bit of a gym rat. But the pyramid set is obviously starting on really low weights and then building up over time to obviously get during a session to get to the heavier weights after a while. And it's one mode. Now, we want to do this mode when it comes to some of the things that cause you fear or anxiety, obviously, in terms of the future. So, Sam, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to use public speaking. You ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. I mean, we're going to be public speaking experts by the end of this, right? Oh, yeah. We'll see where we go. Don't trust me too much. But here's, say, for example, you uh, get really anxious. You're anxious about a um, an upcoming event where you've got to do public speaking. It's three to four weeks away. Now, obviously, it's really important to break it down into smaller pieces. It's much easier to focus on the next day as opposed to four weeks from now. But you do so in the following way in practice. So say you start with your speech in your hand and you actually practice it against a wall, right? You do that first. You remove the speech, mm-hmm. then you repeat it. The next level up might be you keep your speech in your hand still, okay, and then you do it in front of a mirror so you can see a reflection of yourself. Now you're incorporating some form of human. Then you remove the speech, you repeat it. Then you keep the speech in hand again. Now you do it in front of an animal. Do it in front of your dog. Do it in front of maybe something that you've got. There's a lizard, snake, whatever you want to do. Remove the speech, repeat again. And then finally you can build up and give, keep your speech in hand, do it in front of a close friend, now an actual human, and then remove it and repeat until you get to the stage where you're doing it in front of 10, 20 people. And this exposure theory does two things for you because it's training your subconscious because, again, we're trying to do a learned behavior over time. You're actually motivated by the small wins, and motivation is a function of progress. If a human being believes that they are progressing, they're more likely to do it again, that little kick of dopamine. And that's the whole idea of basically training your brain and taking advantage of the neuroplasticity across time. 
So Sam, Ooh. expose yourself through a pyramid. I really that's a really bad title, <laughs> but that's brain tool number three. We're, we're, we're sticking with it. We're sticking for it. It's going to be a whole bunch of people being like, I'm doing the pyramid exposure. Uh. <laughs> uh, I'd like to disclose that that is not legally binding advice and we take no responsibility nor accountability for your actions. What a disclaimer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, brain tool number three, mate. Brain tool number three. That's a goodie. Uh, so wrapping it up with brain tool number four, another one for in the moment. If you can't disrupt your attention and you are really stressing out and your anxiety is like kicking in so hard and that stress response, that fear response is overtaking, one thing you can do is to use your breath. So brain tool number four is meditative breathing techniques totally disrupt that anxiety, fear processing, and stress response. So there are two I'd recommend, either the box breath or the six, seven, eight breath. And you can go look those up uh, and maybe we'll even uh, drop some notes on those somewhere. I know I've posted about them before. And basically what happens is when you do a really deep breath, it stimulates this thing in your body called your vagal nerve, which runs from your gut all the way up to your brain. And that turns on and off uh, your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Your sympathetic is the one that's responsible for stress and anxiety. Parasympathetic is the one that calms down your body uh, and responsible for regulating basically calmness and serenity. So when, when you do deep breathing exercises, you tell your brain, all right, stop being stressed, switch off sympathetic mode to parasympathetic to the non-stress mode and totally disrupts that body stress cycle, calms you down, makes it easier to think. How to do these really quickly. The box breath is just four seconds in, hold for four seconds, four seconds out, hold for four seconds and repeat. You just do a box until your body has calmed down, the adrenaline, the cortisol uh, relaxes you a little bit more. And the six, seven, eight breath is just six seconds in, hold for seven and eight seconds out then breathe back in. Uh, caveat, make sure you do this through your nose. Uh, it's more calming because you absorb more nitrous oxide through your nostrils and slow exhales uh, because that's what really triggers the vagal nerve. And the way to think about it is when we were, you know, surviving out in the wild with predators and animals, if your body was, if you were being chased by an animal, a, a lion, a tiger, an angry giraffe on steroids, whatever it was, right? Um, there's no way your body could be breathing slowly and deeply because in order to run, you have to breathe quickly. So it, quick breath is almost synonymous with stress, whereas breathing deeply and slowly is this really, really great trigger and this signal to your brain that everything's pretty okay. So exactly. brain tool number four, breathe deep, breathe slow. Very important. Stress. It's important to break Very the cycle important. though, right? And even just to, to build upon that a little bit, we've obviously spoken about the box breathing and meditative uh, techniques before, but they're everywhere, right? So there must be some yeah. truth to it all, um, but also yeah. just to sort of, with a turbocharge to it and when you do it when you are doing the box breath and you can actually then like squeeze a part of your body really really tight to have some physical tension and sensation as well and that's what it builds called the body scan technique so when you do do the box mm. breath as Sam has very well outlined um you can you know hold uh clench your fish as hard as you can or some part of your body to also have the sort of physical manifestation and release um to build upon i love that that's awesome that's a great little Addition there, well done. Just, we, uh, just want to come around the outside a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to take take on some of my brain tools. That's okay. You can steal my content. That's fine. We're friends here. I don't hate you at all. Um, <laughs> should we wrap them up? Should we go go back from Let's the top? Let's do it. All 
All right. So uh, in terms of brain tool um, number one, uh, practice fear slash anxiety setting. Uh, again, basically define your fears, yeah. look at preventive measures to overcome those fears, and then obviously look at reparative measures if obviously the worst case scenario is to come past. Putting it onto paper makes it seem a lot less daunting than if it's stuck in your head, given the depressive rumination that can occur. Brain tool number one. Love it. Super powerful. Brain tool number two is disrupt the looping with attention shifting. So focus on something else because focusing on the thoughts that are causing your anxiety will, surprise, surprise, continually trigger that anxiety. Go do something that makes you think. I love it. Brain tool number three. I don't want to say this again. Expose yourself through a pyramid. Basically, start small terms of what you're exposing yourself to in terms of the uh, anxiety and fear and build up as you go the same way you go to a gym start light warm up get into there and then obviously reps on the heavier stuff when you get to it brain tool number three brain tool number three and brain tool number four which is in the moment when you're feeling that anxiety when you're experiencing that stress response when you're sweating and can't think and freaking out a little bit Use meditative breathing techniques because they physically disrupt the stress signal processing in your body and will help you regain control and calm you down. And those are the box breath or the six, seven, eight breath. They are all over the internet. Takes two seconds. Go look them out and just use one next time you're experiencing that anxiety response. Oh, right. tools. So good. Well, should we do an 80-20? Should we? Well, we should. Just a quick one. 80, will, what's your 80 20 for this week? I will, I will start. Uh, I'm going to coin this myself, by the way, but use your conscious faculties to tame your unconscious fallacies. I'm trademarking Ooh. that one. <laughs> but That's obviously, so... use conscious, conscious control to uh, you know take care of the anxiety that might be. That's so intellectually wanky. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Uh, I, was, I was so Big happy with fan. it, but then I said it out loud and I was like, oh, my word, you suck, Kieran. So if no, if no one wants to listen to that A20, please just delete it from your memory. My, my one's way, way simpler than that. And it's simply just anxiety is a function of your focus and attention. Just choose where to put that and you can control your anxiety. That's it. I love it. Well, that's all we've got uh, time for today. So, Samuel, wrap yep. this up. So, wrapping it up, uh, if you like today's content, feel free to share it on social media. Quick, cheeky story on Instagram is also appreciated. If you want to get more, starting from next week, we're doing something really interesting, and I'm turning all our content into brain guides and sending them out as part of Brain Tool Tuesdays. It's our newsletter. You can find it at braintools.substack.com. And if you really enjoyed some of the content we talked about today, we actually just recorded a podcast with Andrea Samedi uh, on her show, The Neuroscience of Social and Emotional Learning. We talk about lots of really, really cool stuff. So go check out that too. Otherwise, get ready for next week. We're going to talk about emotional regulation strategies and it's a big one. It's a big episode. I am pumped. And hey, if they're feeling, yeah. if you're feeling generous, a five-star uh, rating on the good old Ooh, Apple yep not go astray and much appreciate it but i think uh that's all we've got here so bye for now bye for now see you next week